Hey, this is Adam Pawatik from the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. The episode you're about to hear is not our typical content where it's Aaron and me and one guest, you know, doing a deep dive. This is an episode we did with the real estate forums. They were kind enough to ask us to host an AMA that they had planned with Jim Costello. So Aaron and I were you know, more than happy to jump at the opportunity. And it's great content, so we want to share it with you. But it won't be the usual format in that there's Jim and then a panel of industry experts all asking the questions, plus Aaron, plus me. So it's quite a big group, but I really enjoyed it. I hope you do as well. And we'll get into it now. Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to our first Ask Me Anything series it's myself, Aaron Cameron, and Adam Pawatik from the CRE podcast, hosting with Jim Costello, who is the Senior Vice President of Real Capital Analytics. This is brought to you by the Real Estate Forum and Informa. I'd like to introduce our guests. We've got Stephen Gross, who's the Director of Asset Management at Tricon Capital Group. Jason Smalley, Executive Vice President of National Investment Team at CBRE. Brad Olson, he's the President and CEO. Brad, correct me if I'm wrong, of Atlantic Partners. And of course, one of our favorite participants in these types of things is Amy Erickson, who's the Principal and Managing Director of Investments at Avis & Young. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. It is April 24th, 2020. We're in the middle of self-quarantine, of part of the COVID pandemic. The purpose of our sort of Ask Me Anything is to get the insights of Jim Costello, what perspective, what different things he's seeing in the industry these days, you know, given what's going on in our world. Let's start with capital flow. We're going to start macro and work our way micro. Jason, why don't we kick it to you first? You kind of had a concept about you know, the GDP growth and how that's going to have an impact on our economy. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, Jim. Hope you and your family are safe and you know, we're all working from home in a, in a crazy environment. So appreciate the invite to this session and um, looking forward to learning from everyone. And as we move forward, just looking at strategies, how we can maybe be effective and everyone is getting back to work. And and maybe the first question I have is just, you know, we do have some mixed messages as far as how big of a downturn we're going to have. You know, we're obviously at the front end of a new recession here. We had about in Canada, a fairly short recession in 2008-2009. You know, there's over 2 million jobless claims in Canada, over 24 million in the U.S. today. So those are pretty high spike in unemployment. That being said, we've seen the stock market really sharply correct to some degree. And so I think we're all sitting here thinking about what does this economic recovery look like? And that's really been one of the key questions we've been getting. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on generally, is it V-shaped? Is it, is it U-shaped, some other shape that you have in mind? But uh, love to hear your thoughts on the economic recovery and then the uh, maybe labor market recovery. That analogy that everyone likes to go to in recessions to talk about the shape of the recovery, I've been saying that it's going to be a cursive v which just gets blank stares from all the millennials in the audience because you know, they don't know what that script is. But, but the notion is, you know, a really quick, sharp decline, you know, a fast growth out, not as fast as the decline. 
but then sort of, you know, you get that little lilting thing at the end where it levels off, but not necessarily at the previous peak level. What we're going through, there are a number of small businesses that, you know, despite, you know, best intentions of government support to various kinds, whether it's direct payments to households, low-cost loans, or free loans to keep businesses afloat, it's still going to go under. The capital restriction and the temporary line of revenue is going to take some of them out. So we're going to have a disruption of economic activity. One thing that happens in a crisis is that underlying stress in the economy, things that were a problem situation, just kind of limping along, there's going to be a culling effect. And that's going to have an impact on the property sector with a lot of retail that was just sort of getting by now being cleared away. And that's going to have an impact on the property sectors as well. But you noted how Canada did so much better than the United States in the last recession. And you did for a simple reason. The last recession is different than this one. This one is more like what we saw in the 1970s where people wanted to spend money, but they couldn't. Couldn't get gasoline for your car, so you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go to the store and buy anything. You know, there's a supply chain disruption. Same thing now. People want to spend, but they can't. Versus what happened in the financial crisis, the United States, we went on such a binge of crazy lending that we collapsed our financial system. Canada, I remember at the time talking with some folks at uh, like RBC, and they were upset that, oh, you know, we can't do the same kind of lending that uh, everybody in the United States can do. But to their benefit, they couldn't. You didn't have the high highs that we went through with our housing boom, but you didn't experience the low lows either. This time through, it's the same kind of shock to everybody. You know, people have to stay home, people can't spend. And so we're going to see a similar shock to that degree. Yes, but Jim, do you feel that Canada's more vulnerable this time because of the collapse of oil prices and the correlation of the currency with the oil market? Yeah, that's an interesting twist on this whole thing. If you look at the decline, part of it is because of global decline in demand, where people just they can't get out of the house. They don't need to drive. You know, just the demand is not there. And part of it is just the uh, ongoing oversupply between the, the Saudis and the Russians and whatever that game is about. So that part is just an unnecessary part of geopolitics. But yeah, Canada, with everything going on out west, you know, you've got the, the oil price is going to be a problem in the area. And that's going to impact the property markets in, in, in Alberta. I mean, it was starting to recover to some degree in terms of deal volume getting back. And it just just as you're getting back into a bit of a recovery after the oil price declines the other year, I think that might hurt the markets out there for a while. One of the differences this time also is that we anticipate structural shifts in various sectors and various markets. We all have our own views as to what the impact will be in different sectors. But to Jim's point about retail, it's not just all retail that is going to suffer. It's specific subsectors retail, which will suffer more and recover more slowly. In the U.S., in the grocery anchor shopping center market, the new anchor has been restaurants. Restaurants are suffering dramatically, and many of them will not recover. I was on the phone earlier with a contact of mine in Germany who's got a brother who runs restaurants in Denver. He's gone bankrupt. He's not going to reopen that restaurant. And I think we'll have that impact Again, sector by sector, different structural shifts, which will occur across the board, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or whether it's Europe or Asia, some of these things will impact all of us in real estate. And the question is how long and how deeply we'll be affected. Might be a good point to jump to actually Brad's question because you kind of alluded to it 
there, Brad, you know, for two markets that are further into their crisis than we are being, you know, Italy and China, Brad had questions relating to what we're seeing over there as an indicator of what we might experience. So Brad, do you want to jump into those two questions for Jim? It could be a good lead into to what we might expect to see here in Canada. Sure, Adam. Thanks. Uh, basically, one of the critical questions for those of us on the investment side are capital flows. Where is capital coming from? Where is it going? And Jim, RCA's got the best data on that of anybody. And now that you've got Q1 numbers, I wonder if you could share with us what the impact has been in terms of investment volumes in China, Q1 2020 compared to Q1 2019. What are you seeing in the data in terms of capital flows into the real estate business in, in China? Yeah, this ability to look at activity worldwide is useful, I think, as a guide to see what we're going to experience in other parts of the world. China, all of Asia Pacific went into this thing much earlier than the rest of us. And so we can look at the change in real activity. For the first quarter, uh, total deal activity in China was down 40%. Funny thing is that you'd think that with people worried about the future growth in the economy, future growth in demand, maybe development would fall off more. The sale development sites only fell 37% from a year earlier. I mean, the big decline was more on you know, the existing properties, but it's a little funky at the same time. Office was down 75% on a year-over-year basis in China. But, you know, these things are funny. In March last year, it was the strongest March ever in China. A level of deal activity more like a December kind of thing. It's all pointing down. You know, there's a few things that make it uh, not move uh, quite the direction you think it would, but it's, it's all down. And talking with folks, you know, what was driving it are the same things that we were talking about earlier before we got going. Everyone's working at home can't go kick the tires. It's hard to get out and visit a property, see clients, you know, see capital sources. The functional elements of the market were broken and, and left deal volume. Is it too early to tell whether the impact is comparable across different markets in China and different quality? In other words, A markets and A properties doing better or worse than B or C? Are you seeing differences first tier markets to second and third tier markets in China? Yeah. It's a little early on the data to, to segment it uh, uh, that finely. But the tiers, I think it's not going to matter to some degree in the sense of what I think will matter a bit more is where are restrictions heavier and lighter? Cities that did not have as much of a, an impact from the disease and as much restriction to combat it are you know, probably going to be doing better. We're seeing in markets where we play that land deals are the most likely to actually get to the finish line, to your point, because you don't have to get inside of a structure in order to complete your physical due diligence. Is that showing up in the numbers yet? I mean, in China, it was down. But the other thing that is a negative about the land is that if I'm a developer starting today, I need a construction loan. It's harder if we come back to over here, here in the United States, it's very difficult to get a construction loan now. Lenders are more hesitant, but it's also for a developer, it's a harder time to start because you're uncertain about what the future is going to look like. What should I build? Now, there's some sectors that I think they're very optimistic about building. Industrial. Everybody sees a need for more industrial space. The earnings call from Prologis the other day outlined that their demand for space has increased dramatically. So this notion of maybe building more industrial is good. Hotel, if I you know, had some land and thought maybe I could build a hotel, maybe I don't want to build one now because I'm not sure what the demand for a hotel is going to be moving forward. 
So, you know, there's going to be a combination of sort of just the uncertainty and fear limiting developers from moving forward and just the capital issues limiting uh, their ability to move forward as well. So if all that's lining up against you, you know, there's a point where, you know, you're just not going to be buying land. You know, if, if you're not going to build a project, why buy the dirt? Uh, you know, before we get more asset specific, I want to maybe throw this to Stephen. We haven't heard from him yet. And maybe let's keep this macro. You had a question about recovery timeframes and, and how the stimulus may impact the recovery timeframes. You want to kind of ask that question? Yeah, I think my conversation was, I mean, we've just seen in both Canada and the U.S. tremendous amounts of stimulus so far being announced. And it feels like every morning you wake up and there's some new program. First, it was for full-time workers, and then it was for part-time workers. And now we just announced one in Canada. And now students who will be impacted from summer jobs now have a program where they can draw down capital. And it's been incredibly large. I guess question one is, do you foresee government continuing to roll out stimulus packages. I mean, at some point it's got to slow down. And then even with the size of the stimulus packages, do you think there'll be material in expediting or speeding up any kind of recovery sort of back to that? What does that curve look like? Is it, is it going to make a difference? Yeah. You know, the thing that has struck me about these stimulus packages in this recession versus say the global financial crisis, it's happening so much faster now. You know, a month and a half in, and you know how much money have we spent so far worldwide on on stimulus activity? Last time through, it took months of hand wringing before a stimulus activity was put forward. There's two things on that. It sort of reflects the severity of what we're going through. That people are able to you know put uh, some of the concerns aside and work to to get that going. That activity is going to continue until we can get some sort of normality. Normality, you know, what is it? You know, that, that's the thing that's popping up. I mean, uh, parts of China that are opening up, it's not exactly going back to crowded restaurants and everybody crowded on the subway in the same way. There's still a certain amount of social distancing. So it seems like, you know, we have a fast rebound that you get an ability to go out again, but there's some distancing. So it's going to be slower. It's the kind of thing that sounds like they'll have to taper off. Before we jump into more asset-specific questions, I know Amy's got a few. I wanted to flip back to Brad. He asked specifically about cross-border transactions. Obviously, that's a big driver for virtually every economy in the world, but especially important to Canada. What's the early data telling us about the cross-border flows? And uh, Brad, do you want to put that question to uh, Jim? One of the issues that has been raised is a, a return to sort of nationalism, protectionism, it may impact capital flows as well. And it's also true that it's easier for investors to do deals in their home markets when the world is upside down. Jim, I'm wondering in terms of RCA's data, have you seen any shift in terms of the percentage of investment capital staying home versus going abroad? What's the early trend line look like in terms of cross-border business? Cross-border activity is a slow shift. Can't turn on a dime. You know, that's a lot of capital allocated to regional partners, and they're trying to figure out how uh, they access deals. Actually, in the first quarter of 2020, looks like cross-border uh, increased from a year earlier. Uh, so you know, investors were still putting the money to work worldwide. This notion of keeping uh, capital closer to home out of a sense of nationalism, there's that politics issue. But then the real politics is green. You know, what, what happens in terms of what you earn in terms of money? So the, my American bias there talking about money is a green color. The capital flows, to the extent that global supply chains change, 
Now, if we aren't buying as much uh, from China, if resources are produced more locally in every region of the global economy, investors aren't going to be chasing industrial deals, certainly, to chase a global supply chain. They'll be chasing industrial deals to do sort of a regional supply chain. But beyond the industrial sector and that change, you know, just because you know, there's a few things going on in politics between China and the United States, or you know, who knows what happens next? Maybe Italy and France, who knows? You know, there's always some beef out there. The money is still going to be looking for the best risk-adjusted return it can find worldwide. And look at these uh, uh, borders as just sort of a transaction barrier, just another transaction cost. For large countries with a lot of wealth, or small countries with a lot of wealth, <laughs> just countries with wealth that there's not enough assets to put into real estate, you know, it's going to have to find some other place to live. And so I think that cross-border activity will continue. I think, though, there is a risk that the geopolitical issues move to the forefront. And if people are worried about what happens in Europe because of the crisis and the inability of the EU to deal with the crisis on a pan-European basis, some people will be more worried about Europe than they were before the crisis. If there's more worry about what happens in Asia because of what happens in China, then there may be less activity in terms of less movement of capital into China specifically. And I think we'll start to see some of that later in the year. I agree with you. It's early days in terms of seeing it show up in the data. But as I talk to people, particularly my contacts in Europe, I'm already sensing a shift in sentiment, both in terms of staying in their local markets, but then also looking at other markets with a different lens, through a different lens than they had pre-crisis. That issue, I think, is a little bit different, though, in terms of you're talking about not the geopolitics of like one country versus another. I don't like that country and I'm not going to invest money there. It's more that how stable are local economies? That's what's going on with the EU. They're talking about how do we have a common market and how do we have a system of rules across the continent? And that is you know, being debated, trying to renegotiate it in some cases effectively. And so that, that does create a certain level of uncertainty. We saw that with the UK when you know, the whole Brexit thing started. Uh, a certain amount of deal activity pull back because investors weren't sure what the total impact would be. Those kind of changes, yeah. I mean, if you're going to change existing trade relationships and how local economies function, sure. But to the extent it's the kind of stuff where, um, you know, there's a Twitter battle between somebody I won't name and, uh, <laughs> uh, and other countries, I think that stuff, it creates tension, but I don't think it really impacts the capital flows. I mean, all these folks will go to Mipham and Khan and, and uh, talk with each other over Rosé and uh, still be putting money to work worldwide. Maybe just to add to the conversation on um, global capital flows, I see it a little bit more like investors seeking returns or higher returns given this downturn in the economy. Some of the groups we work with think Canada's maybe a little bit boring and think that other, you know, other countries, they'll be able to get a little bit more deal activity and opportunistic type trading versus in Canada. It's been predominantly a pretty closed club-like environment, save and except Calgary, save and except malls, where we'll see some weakness. Uh, we see some of our clients just looking at other jurisdictions for higher returns. I don't know, Jim, if you want to comment on maybe when you look on a global universe where there might be capital sort of moving on a more opportunistic basis. Yeah. You know, sometimes boring is good though. 
especially in uh, times of turmoil. The opportunistic returns look great when the economy is growing and investors are willing to take on a little bit more risk. In a time like today, taking on, say, a development project and then suddenly having it shut down because of social distancing rules, that kind of risk is going to impact someone's portfolio. It is true that Canada is much more concentrated in terms of ownership of assets than other areas. Uh, And this is a legacy issue. You go back, it used to be that Canadian investors, like pension type investors, insurance investors, by regulation could not invest outside of Canada. A lot of the insurance regulators, not just Canada, worldwide, they don't like real estate because traditionally, this is a little self-serving, but traditionally there wasn't a lot of information about the sector available. And, you know, now there is. And so they're more comfortable with folks investing worldwide. The challenge you've got is, sure, you can pick up from Canada and put some money to work someplace else uh, where there's, you know, the the level of competition is different. But we're approaching in some areas a law of one price that, you know, when when you factor out some of the the barriers to moving capital, there's really so much competition worldwide that cap rates have compressed. Throughout uh, parts of the United States that don't even see cross-border capital, cap rates have been compressing dramatically because there's sort of a trickle-down effect. People who used to do deals in Manhattan and they're getting crowded out by cross-border investors from other regions, they'll move to uh, Philadelphia, they'll start doing deals in other areas, and it kind of trickles down until it gets to uh, smaller cities. Jim, if I can just uh, jump on that for a sec. So, I mean, we're talking a little bit about international capital flows, and we know specifically in Toronto and definitely across Canada, we rely so much on immigration to both grow our population, fill our jobs on the residential side, at least on a macro level, you know, clearly in the short term, immigration patterns change very quickly to basically zero. But do you see that sort of having a lingering effect or going back to Brad's question with a little bit more nationalism, people trying to produce their own goods, maybe a little bit less cross border flows? How about people? This limit on immigration, to some extent, Canada has really benefited in the last uh, couple of years, uh, couple of years. <laughs> extreme negative on immigration in the United States. Tech firms have been uh, starting to move activity up to Vancouver because it's so close to Seattle. And uh, I was out in Vancouver last year and I was just amazed at the, the amount of activity underway. You know, the United States was less welcoming. Canada was more welcoming. And so they just look at it as uh, an opportunity for where, where can I source labor, where can I put a campus that can attract the best labor in the world. And Vancouver was winning out. Moving forward, how does the crisis change that? In the short term, there's just not going to be a lot of people moving around and trying to find uh, uh, new opportunities because nobody can travel. People are going to try and find jobs in the parts of the world their their labor is going to be used the best. You know, they'll be looking to move to the fastest growing areas of the world where their skills are most in demand, you know, irrespective of legal barriers. You know, they will either, by hook or by crook, they'll figure a way around that barrier and, and they'll get there. The tighter the restrictions, though, then firms will uh, start to work against that. I think, though, you know, in the near term, the United States, you know, we're still going to be restrictive. You know, we have an election coming up in November that's going to be interesting. We'll say that. We'll see how our immigration policy changes after that. There's a balance, though, between how much is the economy versus protecting health issues in terms of big population flows and what happens with that. For a while, people are probably going to be cautious, not make big changes. But longer term, I think immigration, it's quite helpful for growth in North America. This might be a good point to jump into some of the uh, industry or asset-specific questions. 
Amy had uh, questions about both retail and hotels. Maybe we'll start with the with the worst news and then uh, try and you know, get a little lighter from there. So, Amy, can you uh, can you jump into your question about uh, hotels? Well, in a second, I actually would like to continue on the theme that we're on right now, but I'd like to take it to urbanism. And in Europe, a lot of the cities are moving to pedestrian only for their downtown areas, and there's been a lot of LRT investment, and there's been a real rethink about continuing or accelerating the concentration into the urban areas. And what I'm hearing from my U.S. colleagues is that they think this is going to have the reverse effect. It's going to be a boon to the smaller cities and that people are going to return to their cars and fear transit. And in Canada, that's not really an option because 80% of the country is urbanized. And certainly in Toronto, you couldn't possibly try it have everybody convert to driving into downtown. This is going to be anecdotal because I'm sure you have data about this. Many owners in the course of a month. What are you hearing, Jim, about those kinds of trends from an urbanization perspective and maybe the comment also on climate effects? Whole lot of stuff there to unpack. One way to think about it, though, the issue that people are talking about, density, is density a useful thing for investing moving forward? The challenge, I think, is that we're in the middle of something and it's, you know, it's stressful and a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And making decisions in the midst of that it has to happen, but you got to make sure that you're not just driven by the fear. And in my short career, I've lived through a few recessions. What I've seen sort of in this whole analysis and, and strategy world is that in every recession and recovery, there's a tendency that people have to take what's happening in the very short term and extend it off into the future as if this is a new change and it's going to be like that forever. I'm seeing the same thing happen now in sort of the Twitter sphere and uh, analysis world of what's happening with the real estate. People saying that nobody's going to want to be in cities anymore. Density's dead. Urban areas are dead. To avoid getting sick, people are going to do that. You know, in the short term, it's going to be a challenge, some of the density issues. You can't just immediately pop back to where we were. You're going to have to be wearing masks everywhere, maybe working from home a couple of days a week to kind of... But I think that density is still one of the greatest features of cities. The very fact that in November, I was in Toronto and I was walking through the underground and uh, ran into three clients you know, just uh, walking through the underground at lunchtime. I mean, come on, you know, uh, working from home, you know, how's that going to happen, right? And just sort of the random interactions of folks and, and kind of talking to folks in cities, that's where the economic energy comes from. And so the benefits of density are still there. It's just how do we get to a system where uh, you don't have the, the negatives from, from the disease? And, you know, in uh, cities like New York, we still have a lot of chaos that we're dealing with. But again, Asia went through this earlier. And we see that some of those cities are denser than what we have in North America. Look at Seoul. Seoul, they're through it. You know, they've contained it. You know, they've got public health systems that function very efficiently. Their transit is very clean and orderly. So part of it is not just sort of a government response, a very efficient government response. Some of it's also responsibility. In New York, while the governor and, and the mayor are asking people to behave, you still have a lot of bad behavior and people just uh, looking out for themselves. So you know, there's 
there's a tendency towards talking about, well, what's my personal freedom and how it's being impacted in the middle of this crisis? I think we need more people talking about, well, what's my personal responsibility and what do I need to do to help everybody else? Great. Well, let me pick up on Adam's request. Obviously, the hotel sector is, you know, facing at least short-term oblivion. And the malls are very deeply affected. I mean, here in Canada, the reports are that the rent collections were order of magnitude only about 15% of normal. Now, the malls up here are in very, very strong hands. But still, there on an industry-wide call yesterday, there was some discussion about, as they talked to the retailers, the supply chain disruption is so severe that they don't have any spring or summer clothing. And, you know, it's just, the question comes down to, do you think this is the big consolidation moment in those two spaces? The hotel sector, let's start there. The hotel sector was already facing challenges before COVID. It was facing uh, competition from disruptive uh, upstarts like Airbnb, people finding another way to provide temporary accommodation. That was impacting room demand. And uh, in addition, you had a plethora of new brands that was leading to a lot of hotel construction. New hotel brands and everybody needs a new building, and so you had construction coming with that. So you're entering a crisis situation where demand is being shocked with a lot of excess supply on the market. Now, some of that supply is being withdrawn, like the Airbnb stuff, that's being pulled off the market, and that's going to be probably absorbed a lot of it in the rental market. So that's helpful for hotels. But you know, the, the other stuff, you know, it's just the notion that you have this demand restriction for a number of years. I think that the, the consolidation that's going to happen there, you're going to see some distress. It's going to take a, a year or so for some of that to really come through. But then I think there will be opportunities to come out in the back end. We saw that after 9-11. After 9-11, hotel sector, there was a stigma effect attached to travel. I think we're going to have the same stigma effect for a while after this crisis. That stigma effect, even though you may have a certain amount of economic growth that should lead to a certain amount of room nights, we have less room nights sold for the same amount of economic activity because people will do a little less traveling at first. But then they'll get used to it and they'll be out again. But it's going to take a few years to get there. In that process of a few years to get there, I think there will be some opportunities for folks to go in and uh, do some consolidations in that sector. And then the other thing that will come of it is that as it rebounds, for a while it may outperform other property types in terms of total return activity. We saw that coming out of 9-11. As for retail, the United States has more of a problem there than Canada. We're much more oversupplied on retail than Canada. Uh, more planning restrictions in parts of Canada, more of a consolidated market uh, where participants weren't competing with themselves to some degree. So in the United States, this is a bigger uh, shock. And in some respects, I think it's almost an opportunity because some of these properties were weak performing properties. They were just kind of limping along and probably would have been better off with a higher and better use. Take the the mall built in the 70s with orange tile and brown carpeting and take that and bulldoze it and put up, uh, because it's at a great uh, highway intersection, put up some uh, logistics space, uh, some sort of uh, last mile delivery location. The challenge in the United States has been local planning, tax-based. So uh, cities didn't want to lose the mall because they didn't want to lose the tax revenue, but maybe this nothing like a crisis to change people's mind and uh, open up their eyes to what's happening with reality. So maybe this, uh, in a silver lining perspective, 
Maybe it allows uh, some of the things that have been limiting redevelopment of older properties. Maybe it opens that up a bit. Hang on the retail tenants for a moment longer. I spoke to my mom yesterday as an example, and she found all these new ways to shop called e-commerce. And so <laughs> what used to be growing slowly in North America has clearly expanded really, really quickly. It'll probably trickle down a little bit once stores open because people will want to get outside their house. But is this really the uh, the stimulus that e-commerce needed to entrench itself as a new way of people living? For some of the e-commerce activity, that was clearly, I mean, the other day is a great forward-looking indicator on that. Some of the increased leasing that ProLodge is citing is coming through on that. But not every retail property is necessarily impacted in the same way. You know, grocery stores, uh, you know, yes, online shopping is happening with grocery stores now. However, they're still using the local store as the warehouse, as that point of supply. And, just, you know, so they have the person go in, pick the groceries, you know, assemble it and, and deliver it in that way. So there it's complementary as opposed to competing. Now, maybe over time that might change. Maybe as opposed to the stop and shop, uh, one subway stop away becoming a picking location. Maybe they build a giant, you know, one giant facility a little further out in the borough and deliver from there. But in the near term, there are differences. You know, the discretionary activity that was happening at malls and at uh, you know, certain power center type locations, maybe that starts to change. But uh, certainly on the grocery side and the day-to-day needs at uh, drugstores, you know, there's still sort of a need for that stuff. On the topic of supply chains, we've heard this term, you know, changing just in time, just in case, because other groups wanting to hold more inventory and thus need more warehousing space and to the benefit of large distribution centers and, and warehouses that have a lot of clear height. Just curious if you're hearing that same sort of theme globally and, and what that means to um, space demand for warehouses. Yeah, I had not heard that just-in-case term until, until now. But just-in-case has, you know, there's a cost element with that. If you're holding inventories in a just-in-case basis, that's capital tied up in a certain location for a while. The just-in-time, what's nice about it is that it's a lower capital commitment to you know, have everything just flowing through. If you have to move to a just-in-case to avoid disruptions, it's, it's a recognition of more uncertainty in the world. And I think that, the, that that's also part of the discussion around why, why should the supply chains be so long because they become more sensitive to outside shocks on that. There's a lot of work that's been going to be done in the, the coming years to, to look at this, at sort of what is the right form for the supply chain. I still think China is going to play a role. I mean, even though we try and uh, think about how, how to shorten that, uh, how to eliminate some of those risks, there's still a cost benefit that is going to be there for a while. So that, that's still going to play a role in it all. But putting in that just-in-case component of you know, building up some inventories, that's a higher cost. So one way or another, I think we're going to have a, kind of a higher cost for the supply chain moving forward. I'd like to pick up on both Jason and Amy's comments and put them together. And that is the consolidation question and the supply chain question. A lot of us focus on logistics. So we think ProLogis and we think Amazon and we think all of the logistics and uh, warehousing space in the world is committed to e-commerce. One big factor in this whole distribution chain is what the stores need. And whether it's just in time or just in case, 
the stores, whether the grocery stores or department stores, have a big warehousing component. And to the extent that we see a significant change in the retailing world, in other words, the department stores go out of business at a faster rate even than they were before, that has a major impact on warehousing space. Everybody thinks we need more warehouse everywhere. The fact of the matter is we're going to free up an awful lot of warehouse space as a result of defaulting uh, retailers. The other point I would make is not all e-commerce is the same. I have a relationship with a, a group that owns a portfolio of e-commerce of warehouses in Austin, Texas. A significant number of those are small e-commerce tenants. They're not paying their rent. The reason they're not paying their rent is they cannot get product to put through the e-commerce. Again, back to consolidation, supply chain and consolidation. If the only people who can get products is Amazon, they'll sell everything. If the little guy who is running a specialty e-commerce business out of Austin, Texas, can't get the product from China because all the product is going to Amazon, he can't pay his rent. So I think it's not black and white. It's not binary. Each one of these sectors, there are countervailing forces. We're going to have to figure out over a period of time. Thanks for that, Brad. There's still a couple asset classes we've not covered. Jim, you alluded before to a new hybrid style of working. You'd be a potential partial work from home, partial office occupancy. Stephen had a question uh, about that specifically. Stephen, you want to jump into that? My question was a little bit more trend-based around in our office, especially in big cities. We've seen square foot per worker decreasing fairly dramatically over the last, call it 10, 20 years. And I'm wondering if now as we reset, we start to expand that out a little bit from a workspace per person standpoint. And then as a follow-on, you know, you talked about maybe going back to work, but maybe it's three days or four days a week. And just office demand in general starts to drop a little bit of companies try to figure out how to do more with less. Yeah, there's a couple of different threads moving through this. There's the impact to technology on the workforce. There is, you know, the reaction of folks to, you know, the disease and the reaction to potential for disease. And then there are also some broader demographic trends hitting all this as well. So all those forces are kind of hitting this at once and sometimes working against each other. Let's talk about the disease first. There's sort of a short-term and a long-term effect. Short-term, we're not just going to immediately go back to the office and everything's just hunky-dory and back where it was. Until there's treatments, until there's a vaccine, we can't just uh, assume everything's back to normal. So we have to be still a little cautious once we're done with the whole quarantine period stuff. Knock on wood. Let's let's hope... uh, we get a, a vaccine and you know, it totally goes away. We don't have to worry about this one ever again. Even in that best case scenario, there's still a little bit of fear. Maybe we should be cautious in the future. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe washing your hands is a good thing. Maybe wearing a mask in the flu season is a good thing too. So there might be a certain amount of hesitancy towards certain density type issues. And, and it will people want more private office type uh, considerations, a little bit more barriers in place. Again, I think we have to be careful not to assume that everything from right now continues forever. I remember after 9-11, people are talking about, oh, nobody ever wants to work in an office building again, in an office tower again, in the high floors because of fears of terrorism. And that impacted the office market for a couple of years in terms of leasing. I, I wouldn't be surprised if in this environment as well, the notion of people trying to move to flex office stuff gets a lot of pushback for a while in the sense of seeing that, oh, I don't want to open plan because I might, uh, you know, I might catch something. So there's, there's probably going to be some uh, near-term negatives about that. Uh, uh, but, you know, 
if we get through this in an effective way and if it becomes less of an issue, then the benefits that came from that might still will shine through in terms of ability for certain types of folks to collaborate well together. The other issues that go through this relative to density and urban locations uh, for offices, another thread that's been people have been talking about is that, you know, well, folks are going to want to work in the suburbs now because, you know, nobody wants to be in the city. There's too many folks around. It's going to be more challenging than that. But there was already some movement there anyway. The demographics of it tied to the millennial generation, they were already starting before this crisis to leave cities and move into the suburbs. They're old enough now where they're having kids and settling down and doing that in a tiny apartment up in Young Street is not uh, going to work. You, know, you got to move further out so you can get some space and so the kids don't drive you nuts. That drive was already in place. I think you also start to see some analysis of people saying that, oh, people are moving more to the suburbs you know, because they're afraid of uh, COVID. And it's not because they're afraid of COVID. It was that their time of life for that. So you know, in the near term, I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and people trying to take some of that uncertainty and say that it continues forever. And so we want this only forever. Just like we saw it to 9-11, people saying that no more office towers, no more high floors. There might be some hybrid. There might be a little bit more distance in the office, but still you'll have benefits from density still. You know, not everybody needs that kind of open plan and collaborative type space. Not every job function can use that. But for a lot of the folks where those team kind of approaches work, it's still going to provide a benefit. We just have to be able to do it in a healthy way now. Guys, we're coming up on the end of our allotted time. I'm wondering if anybody has sort of one final question they think will help Jim kind of wrap this up for us. I would just like to follow up on Jim's last point and ask him a follow-up on that. And one of the concerns I have about cities, particularly large East Coast cities and West Coast cities in the U.S., but I think it probably applies globally is that one of the realities that we're facing is that those cities are running out of tax revenue. Governor of New York said he doesn't have two nickels to rub together to pay for things. The mayor of New York doesn't have money. I'm reminded, I'm the oldest person on this call, I'm reminded of what it was like in the 1970s in San Francisco and New York when those cities were broke and they started raising taxes. Property tax is an important part of the revenue stream for most American cities. And companies abandoned those cities because the cost to operate was too high. My question is, do you see risk of an impact of lost revenue base in these major cities, which maybe creates more risk associated with the so-called gateway cities than we've been thinking over the last 20 years? Yeah, these cities have some challenges with the costs of dealing with the, this disease and with uh, you know, some of the reactions to it. At the same time, you know, look at San Francisco, New York, Boston, Chicago, uh, You've already captured most of the U.S. economy there. So there is money. There's a lot of money in these areas that uh, can be used to help support what's happening. I think, uh, you know, some of it's just not being spent efficiently. You know, that's a part of the issue that uh, I think folks have to deal with. And you, know, you may have, uh, you know, some service changes in some of the different cities. There's, you know, also, you know, also politics of you know, local federal spending and how much federal tax comes back. There's a big brouhaha here in the United States yesterday between uh, the governor of New York and a senator from Kentucky over those issues. That's going to be out there for a little bit. But, you know, these but, you areas know, have dealt with this before. And you know, the, the cities still provide a benefit. You know, they still benefit in density. Leaving the city and going off to the distant suburbs, 
you can do your job remotely from a cabin in Banff and, uh, you know, uh, have bears around you and not have to worry about anything, <laughs> great. But have it help you when you first have to find a job because that's one of the benefits of cities. You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm in Toronto and I'm working for one firm and suddenly I don't like them, well, that's okay. Uh, there's, you know, four or five other companies that uh, could really use me. And so that's something that uh, uh, is, is not going to go away. And so I think that uh, this notion that cities are dead, you know, it's going to be a challenging time for sure. There's going to have to be some changes and some uh, better management, but it's possible to do it. We tried to stump you, but you have an answer for everything. We want to thank you today for coming on for this AMA, for being a good sport and letting us pepper you with all the pressing questions of the day. It's been uh, much appreciated. I want to thank the Real Estate Forums for putting this all together and, and all our panelists, Brad Olson, Stephen Gross, Jason Smalley, Amy Erickson, my uh, co-host, Aaron Cameron. And once again, I want to thank our AMA first participant, Jim Thank Costello. you for listening to thank the CRE all. podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.